You're listening to the Field Notes Podcast, where we descend from abstract ideas and disembodied theologies into the embodied, context-specific particulars of ministry on the ground. We hear from local leaders about struggle, breakthrough, doubt, hope, and everything in between. I'm your host, Seth Richardson. structures you know we have a co-pastoring model uh right now is a very unique season because i'm currently serving as the only pastor at life on the vine but um but that's sort of right now out of necessity our our goal is to move towards having a co-pastoring team um but that that has been our leadership structure is that whenever possible uh power is shared and within those leaders, uh, mutuality is practiced. In this, our first episode, we hear from Juliette Liu, pastor at Life on the Vine Church in Long Grove, Illinois, where she's served since 2014. Full disclosure here, I attended and served on staff at Life on the Vine over 10 years ago, uh, which gives me a little bit of an insight into the feel and culture at Life on the Vine. It's not a perfect church, but that experience changed my life and stretched my imagination for discipleship, liturgy, leadership, and what life together was all about. And all of this happened in a non-flashy, understated, and subtle way. Here's the journey we'll take together. Juliet will begin by describing place, the geography where life in the vine is situated. Then she'll describe space, physical space in which Life on the Vine gathers together as a community. She'll describe a little bit about her tradition, her liturgy, some things that make Life on the Vine special and unique. Remember, all of this is not just extra color or flair that's incidental or attached onto the real meat of what's going on. Rather, this is the context in which theology and leadership take on flesh and gain meaning. After we hear about this, Juliet will describe places of struggle and disorientation, and then she'll describe a little bit about places of reorientation and breakthrough and newness that she's experiencing there at Life on the Vine. Our goal here is that by descending into the particulars of Juliet's context, your imagination will be provoked for how the Spirit of God is working in your context. Let's get curious together. Here's Juliet. So Life on the Vine is a church in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. Our church building is in a suburb called Long Grove, which is kind of a, it's a wealthier suburb. And then, but we, we draw in our community, we draw from like anywhere as far out west as Crystal Lake, um, which is about probably a good 45 minutes west of our church building um, to as far as like the city of Chicago, uh, which is probably about, again, like a 45 minute drive uh, east of our building. And then as far north as like uh, 
Waukegan, which is about 40 minutes north of our church building and as far south as like Des Plaines, which is maybe about half an hour south of our building. So we, that's kind of a thing about our, you know, our place is that we're situated in the north, northwest suburbs. Our building is situated in a specific suburb, but as a community, we're pretty scattered very wide and far across the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, we have about 135, 150 people, all, you know, counting all the children. Um, demographics, we uh, we match pretty well uh, the racial demographic of our situation in the Northwest suburbs were um, predominantly white, but about 10% of our congregation is, um, I would say like Asian American or biracial Asian American. Um, probably a little more weighted towards women in our congregation than men. You know, 20 years ago we were planted. So we're only a 20 year old congregation. Um, 20 years ago, the congregation was mostly 20 and 30 year olds, um, mm. 20 and 30 year olds and who were singles. And of course, over time that's shifted. Um, and now we don't actually have very many people in their 20s uh, at all. So we've got like children and youth, then kind of a big gap in, mm -hmm. in terms of like twenties, early thirties, and then a bunch of thirties and forties and 50 year olds. Yeah. The building we worship in is not too old. I mean, it was built in the 1980s. So to me, that doesn't feel that old, but to my kids, that sounds ancient. Um, so it was built in the 1980s. We, again, we were only planted uh, in 2001. So we didn't occupy it for that whole time. But it's a it's a small um, brick building with a tall white steeple. Um, uh, it's situated on a few acres of land, which is really great in the suburbs. Maybe a little unusual that we have as much green space as we do. Lots of old trees. Uh, we have a red barn on our property. Um, it's really, I think shaped the personality of our congregation that we are on this property. It's our children are always running around outside climbing trees. Um, we've, we have lots of gatherings outside on our lawn. We have cookouts in the summer, every other week, we have a cookout after service. Um, we have a bonfire station. Um, so it's a really beautiful place, actually lots of green space and old trees. Um, at one point we had a community garden, unfortunately, Unfortunately, the ground has become too soggy <laughs> to have a garden. So it's a little sad, but we used to have a community garden that the community tended to together. Um, so so again, in, coming in the building, you would come into a small foyer. We've got a, a little coffee bar to the left um, where we serve coffee, you know, each Sunday. And then um, you would see very old second or third hand furniture <laughs> in our in our foyer um, that other people have donated donated to us to use. Um, you would see some art on the walls. Um, art has always been important for our community. Um, we, we think that it helps um, kind of renew our imaginations for the kingdom. So you would notice art on our walls and um, and then the sanctuary would be right in front of you. Uh, it holds, I think if we're seated in a more traditional lecture style setting, it holds about 250 people. 
but the way that we um, gather for worship is in the round. So we have four sections of chairs that all face each other. Um, and at the center of that space is uh, the Lord's table, which is uh, handcrafted from wood by, it was by a former member of our congregation who was a carpenter. Um, he made a beautiful round table that is really central to our gathering space. Um, and it would be set with uh, what we have found to be really meaningful symbols for our worship. So uh, tr Trinity candles, um, a cross, uh, Christ candle, um, oftentimes some other objects on there, depending on the liturgical season that help draw themes for that, for that season. We also, we, uh, we made a prayer labyrinth on our property. Hmm. Uh, so that's part of our green space now. It's a real humble prayer labyrinth, just made out of sand and um, rocks uh, with some plants in the center. Um, but it's, it's very life on the vine, you know, very natural and humble. Space and place matters so much for how people are formed within any given congregation. Sometimes space and place matters as much as or even more than stated theological convictions that a congregation holds. So did you notice what Juliet said about the way that Life in the Vine configures its worship space? They sit in rounds with the table, the communion table, right in the center. So it's not sort of your regular setup where you've got rows that lead all the way up to a stage or um, an altar at the front where when you sit there, you're constantly staring at the back of someone's head or constantly staring at a stage. But rather, you're sitting in rounds where you're actually constantly looking at everybody else. And you're also constantly looking at the table and looking at everybody else through the table. When I was at Life in the Vine, inhabiting this spatial configuration, the table at the center, and encountering people through the table at the center as we worshiped every Sunday was critical to the spiritual formation that God worked in my life. What about you? When you think about the spatial configurations of your congregation, where you guys are situated geographically, what kind of formative impact do you think that it has on your congregation? Next, I asked Juliet about how Life in the Vine inhabits their received tradition. Pay attention here to how Juliet describes their posture, both their desire to be faithful and to operate within the gift that their tradition offers, but also how they take this prophetic posture, not in ways that are trying to just take down the man, but in ways where they're, again, trying to be faithful to how the Spirit is moving in the particulars of their context. Oh, that's, it's a little bit of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so we, the denominational tradition we are a part of is the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, our founding pastor, David Fitch, um, you know, grew up in the Alliance. Um, in, in many ways, internationally, what we love about the Alliance is it, they're all about spirit-led mission. And um, I think in that sense, it, the Alliance has been a good home for us. Um, in other ways though, we've always felt like a bit of an odd duck in our denomination because, um, it's also a denomination that does not, uh, ordain women or 
title women as pastors. And so we, you know, the way that we inhabit our denomination is um, kind of we're, we, our attempt is to take on a gracious posture of prophetic critique <laughs> and to offer hopefully an alternative vision for them about what the body of Christ can look like when men and women are fully serving together as like full partners. Um, that's, that like sound, I mean, when I say that, that sounds like such a beautiful thing. Uh, the act, you know, the reality of it is it's been pretty difficult. Um, you know, sometimes it feels like we get into some trouble <laughs> with our denomination. Um, sometimes it feels like they're very, like they're very gracious and, and can see God at work in us and, and give us room to do what we do. Um, but it, it does sometimes feel like walking on a, you know, walking on a balance beam or it feels tenuous sometimes our relationship with them. So uh, I'm, I'm both immensely grateful for the denomination there and their history for spirit led mission all over the world. Um, but also sometimes uh, a little frustrated, honestly, with the, uh, the slowness of movement and the, you know, the difficulties regarding polity that we disagree with. Next, Juliet's going to describe the liturgy that characterizes the Sunday morning gathering at Life on the Vine. Pay special attention to what Juliet says toward the end about the unwritten practices, the unscripted liturgy that characterizes their worship. This is really important because we've all got those, the unscripted liturgies, the things that, for good or for bad, make a difference in how people are shaped uh, within our worship gathering in particular. Some people say, you know, our worship begins actually around the coffee table in, in the foyer, that that's actually where it begins. So there's there's some fellowship. Um, but then when we come into the sanctuary, there's a little bit of gathering, some announcements. We try to couch those as like, you know, this is where we gather as a family. And whenever we gather as a family, there, there are things to, to share and to announce, um, to make sure everyone knows what's going on in our family. Uh, so we share some announcements. And then... Um, a liturgist will lead us uh, first into a time of silence. Um, so oftentimes, you know, you get to church, you're a little flustered or in a, in a hurry to make it on time. And so um, the first thing we do is we gather in silence. Um, oftentimes a scripture passage or a reflection is very brief is offered to lead us into that time. After the time of silence, then we, um, we light our Christ candle on the table and we um, offer a prayer of invocation. Um, sometimes there's music after that. And then we read from the scriptures, uh, the um, oftentimes the lectionary readings. So Old Testament, Psalm, New, uh, Epistle, Gospel reading. Uh, we read, our, our readers stand in the four corners of our sanctuary and read those passages. Um, kind of just to represent like God's word being proclaimed uh, from the corners of the world. And um, then a liturgist will lead us oftentimes through uh, some, some, some form of prayer um, based on those scripture readings. Uh, so it could be a, a prayer of confession, um, a prayer of like surrender, uh, but oftentimes either it's, it's based on the scripture readings or uh, the, the liturgical season um, to draw us into that 
space of the season. And then uh, we have a sermon where the good news is proclaimed. Um, after the sermon, our, our preacher often offers a response for the congregation. It's basically like a fill in the blank prayer sentence. Um, so rather than just sort of, you know, digest and continue to, to think about a sermon, we invite people right then and there to surrender to the good news that's been announced um, by offering, you know, their lives in prayer in surrender to that good news. Um, after that, we uh, take the Eucharist together. Uh, there's often more music worship. Uh, we sing the doxology and give offering and then uh, give offer a benediction to the people. During those uh, songs that we sing in worship after the Eucharist, the children uh, gather and dance, uh, sometimes around the table, but sometimes off to sort of one side of the room. And that's, that's like a very, um, it's not like on any written program, but that's very much a part of our congregation is that that space where children can uh, can dance and get around and move their bodies. And <laughs> that's their form of like worship expression, you know. And on Easter, oftentimes, you know, ribbons, uh -huh. uh, which is a dangerous combination given all of the candles we have lit on Easter morning <laughs> with the flying ribbons in the air. Mm -hmm. um, I also didn't mention, you know, the places where like after the scripture readings, we we do dismiss the children uh, to continue to worship in children's worship. And we we speak a blessing on them and they speak a blessing on us as they go. So we we say the Lord be with you as you worship. And then the children say to us and also with you. And then they go off to their room. Then they come and rejoin us for the Eucharist. And um, we 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 don't hold open communion, so we still the, the tables for those who have been baptized. So children who have not been baptized, as they approach um, the people administering the elements, will um, ask for permission to to lay a hand on their heads, and then they they pray a blessing over the children. Next, Juliet will describe a place of tension and disorientation that they are wrestling with in real time there at Life on the Vine this tension between contemplation and justice. I think, you know, I, I think an ongoing struggle is, so I, you know, I, I think another, another thing I, I would say is fairly unique about us is like, we're a mixture of both like contemplative and justice oriented. Um, and that's fairly new. I don't think that's always been true of us in the history of our congregation, but I would say within the last 10 years, um, that we, we draw from contemplative streams of spirituality and we also are growing kind of more of an activist spirit. Um, I think though, we're still very much in the stages of growth there, right? Like we have not figured that out. Like, what does it look like to to be a church in the suburbs, particularly, that um, understands justice as being central to the gospel and to the church, um, and understands how to live that out in our context. Especially when our context is like our physical context is that we are spread very, very widely across the suburbs. And so sort of the typical like place-based engagement, like neighborhood engagement 
is difficult for us because the question is always, well, who's, who's neighborhood, right? If we're all the way from like the city of Chicago to Crystal Lake, which for anyone familiar with the Chicago area, those are, that's a huge spread. Like how do we go from just talking about justice and reading our books to actually actively engaging the, the neighborhood or whoever, you know, uh, whoever, whoever it is that God is asking us to be in solidarity with or to come alongside with. Um, so that's, uh, that's sort of a combination of, of different problems though, right? Like how do we, how do we grow in justice? How do we become a just people? Um, coupled with the challenge of being a suburban church that is, we have suburban sprawl in our congregation. As you're listening to Juliet, you may wonder, what do you do about this problem? How do you resolve this tension? Does it need to be resolved? And is this tension more of a conceptual thing? Like, we just need to teach more classes about how contemplation and justice fit together? Or is it more of a practical, geographical, where people are actually physically located kind of issue? Juliet speaks to that. I think right now it's more the second. Um, it's more that struggle with uh, what does this look like for us um, given our geographic sprawl. I think that you know early on in the early on in our learning process that it was more of the first, right? It was sort of this like probably the contemplative stream of thought was present in us longer than than the um, than being justice oriented, and so mm. I think at first there was sort of this push of like, but that's not that's not who we are, you know, like that's, um, and so, but I I do think that we've moved beyond that, and now it's just sort of a like, how do we do this? Yeah, in a way that's not just going from project to project. Um, mm -hmm. how do we do this as like who we are and where where we are and where are we rooted? I think one of the major things we did that brought those two things together was we learned how to lament corporately. Um, so we were, you know, like everyone else in the nation, as we've seen even things that feel far away, like from us in the suburbs, like police violence against people of color. Um, we started to uh to risk like changing our plan for Sunday morning and entering into lament communally um and that was a big shift because we had such a commitment to the liturgical calendar that that was really kind of like that was maybe like what people thought should be our only driving force when it came to what we do when we gather so being able, being willing to interrupt that and say, like, yes, it's it's Easter tide right now, but like this thing just happened, and a community is grieving, and we need to grieve with them, and so we're we're gonna put these things on hold and and lament together. Um, I think the spirit of lament is still is still is like a contemplative kind of thing, you know? And so I think, I guess I wonder if that was a good avenue into becoming more justice oriented was just taking the time in prayer to stop and say, 
we're seeing these things, we're disturbed by them. We, we refuse to be a people who just say, I guess this is just the way the world is. And we're gonna actually cry out to God about them instead. As we come to the end of our conversation, Juliet describes a place at Life in the Vine where she's noticing the Spirit's generative work. And as you will be able to tell in our exchange, I'm really interested by what she's describing because she's describing, as she says, the difference between implicit and explicit theology. She's talking about the way that their value, their culture that they're reaching for at Life in the Vine of shared leadership between men and women, where women's voice and opinion is honored, is not just something that comes across because they've taught it well, but it's now something that you catch, that you feel just by being a part of that community. I realized after 20 years of trying to like create a culture at Life on the Vine that was very welcoming of women, I realized like we've done that. <laughs> um, and not just a welcoming culture for women, but also like a welcoming culture for women and the ways that they are, right? Like it's, it's beyond just like, you're welcome here, but it's like, and the way that you think about things and the way that you see the world and your approach is really like central to shaping who we are here as a community. Um, and that feels good to say like, well, the thing that we set out to do, it really feels like we've done that um, in a way that like, we don't even really think about it anymore. Like there's enough, what's that word when like things are set in motion? Momentum? Yes. <laughs> like the culture we've created has enough momentum to it now that we we don't even have to explain it that much. It's just, um, if you were to come to our community, you would slowly catch catch on. To how to how things work, um, so that you know that feels good. I think we have to get better at like continuing to explain and point out those things. Um, but I think you know Peter Chaw in my seminary classes at Trinity would always talk about like the power of implicit theology versus the power of explicit theology, and um, you know, many churches only focus on explicit theology and not implicit. And I'm like, hey, we're, you know, we've we've built this culture, like we're doing the implicit theology thing well. We also need to probably keep paying attention to the explicit theology and naming what you experience when you come to our community. Yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. So what you're describing, one one source of hope and and breakthrough is that this space that you were trying to cultivate that that honored women in particular as leaders and full members of the community that you feel like that that's really happening and taking root. And then mm -hmm. it shifted beyond an aspiration to an actual um, feature of the, the habits and postures and body, like of your community as a body such that like if someone were to come to it, they're going to notice it. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's just going to, it has that momentum to it. It has that, um, that life to it already in such a way that like, you're not, I'm hearing you say that you're not constantly having to like, to uh, um, like defend it or to um, sell it. It just, mm -hmm. it is people experience it, not because you've sold it to them, but because they've encountered it 
within the DNA of the community. But so what you're saying is interesting because you're describing that like that's sort of backwards from how most people are holding in churches, like things that they want. It's like mostly aspirational and you're trying to work that aspiration down into reality. And you're describing it. It's like, it's in reality, but maybe we should like articulate more, more specifically publicly officially what's going on here. Yes. Cause what happens is sometimes then when, when someone from the outside enters in and joins our community, they (laughs) like, it feels wrong to them. They're like, uh, so, you know, they, if they're coming from, let's just say like a more typically white evangelical space where, um, efficiency and more extroverted kind of power has been held up as being the ideal, um, they enter into our community and they're like, man, like this community is so great. If only you guys could like be more efficient. If only, like, if only you could have like a stronger leader up front, if only, um, you know, things like that, then imagine how much better this community could be. And they don't realize that actually this, this has been the cultivated work of 20 years of trying to build a place um, where both women and men um, have come together to shape a new community. And this is, this is the fruit of that. They think like we have problems that they can fix. Um, and they see, they see the goodness of it, but they also want to fix it. Thanks for listening to the Field Notes Podcast, brought to you by the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. A special thanks to Juliet for sharing how the Spirit is working in her context. The Field Notes Podcast offers a behind-the-scenes glimpse into the kind of work we do at the Telos Lab for Congregational Discovery. The lab partners with you in your ministry contacts, digs into the details and nuances of your context, and helps you discern new transformative practices that helps your community participate in what God is already doing among you. If you'd like to learn more, check out the link in the show notes.